Chapter 2 Entrusting in the Mercy of God I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Psalm 52.8 In dealing with this subject, I will discuss the following points. Roman numeral 1. What mercy is? Roman numeral 2. What is implied in trusting in the mercy of the Lord forever? Roman numeral 3. The conditions on which we may safely trust in God's mercy. And Roman numeral number 4. Several mistakes that are made on this subject. Roman numeral 1. What mercy is. 1. Mercy, as an attribute of God, is not to be confounded with mere goodness. This mistake is often made. You will see at once that it is a mistake if you consider that mercy is directly opposed to justice, while justice is one of the natural and legitimate developments of goodness. Goodness may demand the exercise of justice. Indeed, it often does. However, to say that mercy demands the exercise of justice is to use the word without meaning. Mercy asks for justice to be set aside. Of course, mercy and goodness stand in very different relations to justice, and they are very different attributes. 2. Mercy is an arrangement to pardon the guilty. Its exercise consists in arresting and setting aside the penalty of law when that penalty has been incurred by transgression. It is, as it has been said, directly opposed to justice. Justice treats every individual according to what he deserves. Mercy treats the criminal very differently from how he deserves to be treated. What one deserves is never the rule by which mercy is guided, although it is precisely the rule of justice. 3. Mercy is exercised only when there is guilt. It always presupposes guilt. The penalty of the law must have been previously incurred, or else there can be no room for mercy. 4. Mercy can be exercised no farther than one deserves punishment. It may continue its exercise just as long as punishment is deserved, but no longer. It can go just as far as one's transgressions deserve, but no farther. If great punishment is deserved, great mercy can be shown. If endless punishment is due, then there is opportunity for infinite mercy to be shown, but not otherwise. Roman numeral 2. What is implied in trusting the mercy of the Lord forever? 1. Trusting in mercy implies a conviction of guilt. No one can properly be said to trust in the mercy of God unless they have committed crimes and are conscious of this fact. Justice protects the innocent, and they may safely appeal to it for defense or remedy. But for the guilty, nothing remains but to trust in mercy. Trusting in mercy always implies a deep, heartfelt conviction of personal guilt. 2. Trust in mercy always implies that we have no hope on the obligation of justice. If we had anything to expect from justice, we would not look to mercy. The human heart is too proud to throw itself upon mercy while it presumes itself to have a valid claim to favor on the obligation of justice. Even more, to appeal to mercy when we could rightfully appeal to justice is never demanded either by God's law or the gospel nor can it be in harmony with our relations to God's government. In fact, the thing is impossible in the very nature of the mind. 3. To trust in mercy implies a proper understanding of what mercy is. 
Many people fail on this point because they confuse mercy with mere goodness or with grace, which is considered as mere favor to the undeserving. Grace may be shown where there is no mercy, as the term mercy is applied to the pardon of crime. We all know that God shows favor or grace in the general sense to all the wicked on earth. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5.45 However, to trust in this general favor shown to the wicked while on trial here is not trusting in the mercy of God. We never trust in mercy until we really understand what it is. Pardon for the crimes of the guilty. 4. To trust in God's mercy implies a belief that He is merciful. We could not trust Him if we did not have such a belief. This belief must always lie at the foundation of real trust. Indeed, so naturally does this belief produce that richness of the soul and resting upon God that we call trust, that in the New Testament sense it commonly includes both. Faith or belief includes a wholehearted commitment of the soul to God and a sincere trust in Him. 5. To trust in the mercy of God forever and ever implies a conviction of deserving endless punishment. Mercy corresponds with the punishment that is deserved, and it can go no farther in its nature. It is rational to rely upon the exercise of mercy for as long as we deserve punishment, but no longer. A prisoner under a three-year's sentence to a state prison may ask for the exercise of mercy in the form of pardon for that amount of time. But he will not ask for a pardon for ten years when he needs it only for three, or he will not ask for a pardon after his three years' term has expired. This principle is perfectly obvious. Where the deserving of punishment ceases, there mercy, along with our trust in mercy, also ceases. As long as the deserving of punishment continues, so may mercy, along with our trust in its exercise. When, therefore, the psalmist trusts in the mercy of God forever, he renounces all hope of ever being received to favor based upon the obligation of justice. 6. Trusting in mercy implies a cessation of all excuses and excuse-making. The moment you trust in mercy, you give up all apologies and excuses at once and entirely, for these imply a reliance upon God's justice. An excuse or apology is nothing more or less than an appeal to justice, a plea designed to justify our conduct. Trusting in mercy forever implies that we have ceased from all excuses forever. Accordingly, a person on trial before a civil court, as long as he tries to justify himself and offer excuses, appeals to justice. But if he goes before the court and pleads guilty, offering no justification or excuse whatsoever, he throws himself upon the clemency of the court. This is quite another thing from self-justification. It sometimes happens that in the same trial the accused party tries both measures. He first attempts his own defense, but finding this vain, he shifts his position, confesses his crime and poor judgment, and throws himself upon the mercy of the court. It is always understood that when someone pleads guilty, he stops making excuses and appeals only to mercy. It is the same in any private matter with my neighbor. If I justify myself fully, I certainly have no confession to make. But if I am aware of having done him wrong, I freely confess my wrong and appeal to mercy. Self-justification stands directly against confession. This is also how it is in parental discipline. 
If your child passionately justifies himself, he makes no appeal to mercy. But the moment he throws himself into your arms with tears and says, I was wrong, he stops making excuses and trusts himself to mercy. It is the same in the government of God. Trust in mercy is a final giving up of all reliance upon justice. You have no more excuses. You make none. Roman numeral 3. The Conditions on Which We May Safely Trust in God's Mercy 1. Public justice must be appeased. Its demands must be satisfied. God is a great public judge, sustaining infinitely responsible relations to the moral universe. He must be careful what he does. Perhaps no measure of government is more delicate and difficult in its actions than the exercise of mercy. It is a most critical point. There is eminent danger of making the impression that mercy would trample down law. The very thing that mercy does is to set aside the execution of the penalty of law. The danger is that this might seem to set aside the law itself. The great problem is how the law can retain its full majesty when the execution of its penalty is entirely withdrawn. This is always a difficult and delicate matter. In human governments, we often see great firmness exercised by the judge. During the scenes of the American Revolution, Washington was earnestly entreated to pardon British Major John Andre. The latter was eminently an amiable, lovely man, and his case excited a deep sympathy in the American army. Numerous and urgent petitions were made to Washington on his behalf, but Washington could not yield. They pleaded with him to see Andre, hoping that a personal interview might touch his heart. But Washington refused even to see him. He dared not trust his own feelings. He felt that this was a great crisis and that a nation's welfare was in peril. Hence his stern, unyielding decision. It was not that he lacked compassion of soul, for he had a heart to feel. Under the circumstances, though, he knew too well that no opportunity must be given to the indulgence of his tender sympathies. He dared not gratify these feelings lest a nation's ruin would be the penalty. Such cases have often occurred in human governments. When every feeling of the soul is on the side of mercy and strong demands are made for leniency, but justice forbids. Often in family government, the parent has an agonizing trial. He would sooner bear the pain himself than to inflict it upon his son. But interests that could be of great importance are at stake, and they must not be put in peril by the indulgence of his compassions. If the exercise of mercy in such cases is difficult, how much more so in the government of God? Therefore, the first condition of the exercise of mercy is that something must be done to meet the demands of public justice. It is absolutely indispensable that law be sustained, no matter how much God may be inclined to pardon. Yet he is too good to exercise mercy on any such conditions or under any such circumstances that will impair the dignity of his law, throw out a license to sin, and open the very floodgates of iniquity. God can never do this, and he knows he never should. On this point, it only needs to be said now that this difficulty is completely removed by the atonement of Christ. 2. A second condition is that we repent. Certainly no sinner has the least reason to hope for mercy until he repents. Will God pardon the sinner who remains in his rebellion? Never. To do so would be most unjust in God and most ruinous to the universe. It would be virtually proclaiming that sin is just a triviality, that God does not care how set in wickedness the sinner's heart is, 
and that God will accept the most rebellious and unhumbled heart. Before God can do this, he must cease to be holy. 3. We must confess our sins. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 God sustains such relations to the moral universe that he cannot forgive without the sinner's confession. He must have the sinner's testimony against himself and in favor of law and obedience. Suppose a man convicted and sentenced to be hung petitions the governor for pardon, but is too proud to confess, at least in public. He says, May it please, Your Honor, between you and me, I am willing to say that I committed that crime alleged against me, but you must not ask me to make this confession before the world. You will have some regard to my feelings and to the feelings of my numerous and very respectable friends. Before the world, therefore, I will continue to deny the crime. I trust, however, that you will suitably consider all the circumstances and grant me a pardon. Pardon you, you wretch, the governor would say. Pardon you when you are condemning the whole court and jury of injustice and the witnesses of falsehood? Pardon you while you set yourself against the whole administration of justice in the state? Never, never. You are too proud to take your own place and appear in your own character. How can I rely on you to be a good citizen? How can I expect you to be anything better than a bold evildoer? Let it be understood, then, that before we can trust in the mercy of God, we must really repent and make our confession as public as we have made our crime. Now suppose that someone is convicted and seeks to be pardoned, but will not confess at all. He says to the governor, I have no crimes to confess. I have done nothing particularly wrong. The reason I have acted as I have is that I have a desperately wicked heart. I cannot repent and never could. I don't know how it happens that I commit murder so easily. It seems to be second nature to me to kill my neighbor. I can't help it. I am told that you are very good and very merciful. They even say that you are love itself, and I believe it. Certainly, then, you will grant me a pardon. It will be so easy for you to do, and it will be so horrible for me to be hung. You know I have done only a little wrong, and that was only because I could not help it. You certainly cannot insist upon my making any confession. You would not have me hung because I don't repent. You certainly are too kind to do such a thing. I don't thank you for your good opinion of me, the angry reply must be. The law will take its course. Your path is to the gallows. Do you see that sinner over there? Hear him mock God in his prayer. I trust in the mercy of God, for God is love. Do you repent? I don't know about repentance. That is not the question. God is love. God is too good to send people to hell. Those who think that he ever sends anyone to hell are wrong, and they slander God. Too good? Too good? Do you say that God is so good that he will forgive whether the sinner repents or not? Too good to hold the reins of his government firmly? Too good to secure the best interests of his vast kingdom? Sinner, the God you think of is a being of your own crazy imagination. Your God is not the God who built the prison of despair for hardened sinners. Your God is not the God who rules the universe by righteous law and also governs the human race on a gospel system that magnifies that law and makes it honorable. 4. We must really make restitution as far as lies in our power. You may see the bearing of this in the case of a highway robber. 
he has robbed a traveler of $10,000 and is sentenced to the state prison for life. He petitions for pardon. He is very sorry for his crime. He will make any confession that can be asked, no matter how public. But will he make restitution? No, not he. He needs that money himself. He is so patriotic that he might give up half of it to the government. He is so generous that he is ready to make a donation of $5,000 for the public good. He is ready to donate a large sum of money to charitable causes. But whose money? Where is his justice to the person he has robbed? Will this reprobate consecrate to the public what he has torn from his neighbor and put it into the treasury of the government? No. Such a gift would burn right through the chest. What would you think if the government would tolerate such an act? You would abhor their wretched corruption. Look at that man of the world. His whole business career is a course of overreaching. He cunningly slips his hands into his neighbor's pockets and fills up his own. His habit is to sell things for more than they are worth and buy them for less. He knows how to monopolize and make high prices and then sell out his accumulated stocks. His mind is forever working to manage and make good bargains. But this man at last must prepare to meet God. So he turns to his money to make it answer all things. He has a large gift for God. Maybe he will build a church or send a missionary, something at least big enough to buy a pardon for a life about which his conscience is not very easy. Yes, he has a splendid bribe for God. But will God take it? Never. God burns with indignation at the thought. Does God want your price of blood, those gains of oppression? Go and give them back to the suffering poor, whose cries have gone up to God against you. How shameful to think of taking from your brother and giving some of it to God. You are not merely robbing Peter to pay Paul, but you are robbing man to pay God. The pardon of your soul is not bought in that way. 5. Another condition is that you really reform. Suppose there is a villain in our neighborhood who has become the terror of the entire region. He has already murdered a dozen defenseless women and children. He burns down houses by night, plunders and robs during the day, and talks every day about his crimes at which every ear tingles. No one feels safe for a moment. He is a bold and bloody villain. At last he is arrested, and we all breathe more easily. Peace is restored. However, this criminal, having received the sentence of death, petitions for pardon. He professes no repentance whatsoever and does not even make a promise to try to change. Yet the governor is about to give him a free pardon. If he does so, who will not say he should be hung up himself by the neck until he is dead? But what does that sinner say? I trust in the great mercy of God. I have nothing to fear. Does he reform? No. What good can the mercy of God do for him if he does not change? 6. You must go the whole length in justifying the law and its penalty. Observe that convicted criminal. He does not believe that government has any right to take his life for any crime. He constantly complains about the justice of such a proceeding, and on this ground insists that he must have a pardon. Will he get it? Will the governor take a position that is clearly opposed to the very law and constitution that he has sworn to uphold? Will he repress the law to save one criminal or even a thousand criminals? 
not if he has the spirit of a ruler in his heart. If that guilty man wants mercy from the execution, he must admit the right of the law and of the penalty, or else he puts himself against the law and cannot be trusted in the community. Now hear that sinner. He has much to say against his well-deserved sentence and against the justice of eternal punishment. He denounces the laws of God as cruelly and unrighteously severe. Sinner, do you think God can forgive you while you pursue such a course? He would as soon repeal His law and vacate His throne. You make it impossible for God to forgive you. 7. No sinner can be a proper object of mercy who is not entirely submissive to all those measures of the government that have brought him to conviction. Suppose a criminal would plead that there had been a conspiracy to catch and arrest him, that witnesses had been bribed to give false testimony, that the judge had charged the jury falsely, or that the jury had given an unrighteous verdict. Could he hope by such false allegations to obtain a pardon? Not at all. Such a person cannot be trusted to sustain law and order in a community under any government, human or divine. Listen to that sinner complain and criticize. Why, he asks, did God allow sin and temptation to enter this world at all? Why does God let the sinner live at all to face a doom so dreadful? Why does God stop the sinner's path by his providence and cut him down in his sins? Yet this very sinner talks about trusting in God's mercy, while the entire time he is accusing God of being an infinite tyrant and of seeking to crush the helpless, unfortunate sinner. What do these complaints mean? What are they but the uplifted voice of a guilty rebel condemning his Maker for doing good and showing mercy to his own rebellious creatures? It only takes a moment to see that the temptation complained of is simply that which is good being placed before a moral agent to melt his heart by love. Yet, the sinner criticizes this and pours out his complaints against God. Be assured that unless you are willing to go the full length of justifying all that God does, He can never pardon you. God has no option to pardon a self-justifying rebel. The interests of myriads of moral beings forbid His doing so. When you will take the position most fully of justifying God and condemning yourself, you place yourself where mercy can reach you, and then it surely will, and not before. 8. You must accept most warmly the plan of salvation. This plan is based on the assumption that we deserve everlasting death, and that if we are to be saved, it must be by sovereign grace and mercy. Nothing can save except mercy. Mercy that meets the helpless sinner in the dust as the sinner, without an excuse or an apology, gives to God all the glory and takes to himself all the guilt and shame. There is hope for you, sinner, in embracing this plan with all your heart. Roman numeral 4. Several mistakes that are made on this subject. 1. Many people really trust in justice instead of in mercy. They say, God is just. God will not do me any injustice. I intend to do as well as I can, 
and then I can safely leave myself in the hands of a just God. It is true that God will not do to you any injustice. You never need to fear that. But how terrible if God would give you strict justice. How fearful if you get no mercy. If God does not show you infinite mercy, then as certain as it is that you are a sinner, you are forever lost. Trusting in God's justice is a fatal rock. The sinner who can do it calmly has never seen God's law and his own heart. The psalmist did not say that he trusted in the justice of God forever and ever, but the psalmist said that he trusted in the mercy of God. 2. Many people professedly trust in the mercy of God without fulfilling the conditions on which mercy can be shown. They may hold on in such trusting until they die, but no longer. 3. Sinners do not consider that God cannot do away with their necessity to fulfill these conditions. He has no right to do so. The conditions spring out of the very constitution of his government, from his very nature, and must therefore be strictly fulfilled. God would sooner send the whole race, even the whole universe, to hell rather than dispense with their fulfillment. If God were to set aside these conditions and forgive a sinner who was still unhumbled, unrepentant, and unbelieving, he would upset his throne, unsettle the moral universe, and kindle another hell in his own arms. 4. Many people are defeating their own salvation by self-justification. Pleas that excuse self and criticisms that accuse God are both alike and stand fatally in the way of pardon. Since the world began, no sinner has found mercy in this condition. 5. Many people pretend to trust in mercy who still profess to be punished for their sins as they go along. They claim to hope for salvation through mercy, yet they say that they are punished for all their sins in this life. Two more absurd and self-contradictory things were never put together. Punished as much as they deserve here, yet saved through mercy. Why don't they plainly say that they will be saved after death through justice? Surely, if they are punished as much as they deserve as they go through this life, justice will ask no more after death. 6. People who plead for the letter of mercy often really rely upon justice. The deep conviction of sin and what they really deserve does not sink into their souls until they realize what mercy is, and until they feel that they can rely on nothing else. 7. Some people are covering up their sins, yet dream of going to heaven. Do they think they can hide those sins from the omniscient eye? Do they think to cover their sins and yet still prosper, despite God's dreadful word? Proverbs 28.13 8. We cannot reasonably ask for mercy beyond our acknowledged and felt guilt, and those who suppose that they can are making a fatal mistake. Without a deep conviction of conscious guilt, we cannot be honest and in earnest in pleading for mercy. Listen to that person pray who thinks that sin is not a big matter and that it does not deserve much punishment. O oh Lord, I need a little mercy, only a little. My sins have been few and of small account. 
Grant me, Lord, exemption from the brief and slight punishment that my few errors and mistakes may have deserved. Listen to the Universalist pray. O Lord, you know that I have been punished for my sins as I have gone through life. I have had a fit of sickness and various pains and losses, nearly or quite enough, you know, to punish all the sins I have committed. Now, therefore, I pray that you will give me salvation through your great mercy. How astonishing that some people should hold such nonsense! How can a universalist pray at all? What should they pray for? Not for pardon, for on their principles they have a valid claim to be exempt from punishment on the basis of justice, just as the criminal has who has served out his sentence in the state's prison. The only rational prayer that can be made by them is that God will do them justice and let them go, since they have already been punished enough. But why should they pray for this? God may be trusted to act in justice without their praying for it. I don't wonder that universalists only pray a little. What do they have to pray for? Their daily bread? That is fine, but they do not need to pray for the mercy of God, for they believe that they suffer all that they deserve. That is a pleasing delusion that is flattering enough to human pride. But it is strange for rational minds, and it is terribly damaging. Restoration takes basically the same ground, but leaves a part of the penalty to be worked out in purgatory, claiming salvation on the ground of justice and not mercy. Mercy can have no place in any system of universalism. Every form of this system displays God in robes of justice, inflexible, fearful justice. These people say that they trust in the mercy of God. But what have they done with the gospel and with all that the Bible says about free pardon to the guilty? They have thrown it out of the Bible. And what have they given us instead? Only justice and punishment enough for sin in this world, or at least in a few years of purgatory. They believe that sin is a trivial matter, that God's governing is a mere farce, that God is a liar, and that hell is just something imaginary to scare people. What is all this but such dire blasphemy as ever came from hell? If we ask for only a little mercy, we will get none at all. This may seem strange, but it is nevertheless true. If we are to get anything, we must ask for great blessings. Suppose a man deserved to be hung yet asks only for a little favor. Can he be forgiven? No. He must confess the whole of his guilt in its full and terrible form, and must show that he feels it in his very soul. Sinner, you must come and confess your whole guilt as it is, or you will have no mercy. Come and get down low, lower, infinitely low before God, and find mercy there. Hear the Universalist. All he can say at first is, I thank God for a thousand things. But he begins to doubt whether this is quite enough. Maybe he needs a little more punishment than he has endured in this life. He sees a little more guilt so he prays that God would let him off from ten years of deserved punishment in hell. If he sees a little more guilt, he asks for a reprieve from so much more punishment. However, 
If truth flashes upon his soul and he sees his own heart and life in the light of God's law, he gets down lower and lower, as low as he can, and pours out his prayer that God would save him from that eternal hell that he deserves. He cries out, Can God forgive so great a sinner? Yes, and so much more readily the more you humble yourself and realize your need to ask for much mercy. Only come down and take such a position so God can meet you. Remember the prodigal son and that father running, falling on his neck, weeping, welcoming, and forgiving? Luke 15, 11-32 Oh, how that father's heart gushed with tenderness! It is not the greatness of your sins, but the pride of your heart that keeps you from salvation. It is not anything in your past life, but it is your present state of mind that makes your salvation impossible. Think about that. You do not need to wait to use any methods with God to persuade Him to save you. He is using means with you to persuade you to be saved. You act as if God could hardly be moved by any possible pleas and submissions to exercise mercy. Oh, you do not see how His great heart beats with compassion and presses the streams of mercy forth in all directions, pouring the river of the waters of life at your very feet, and creating such a pressure of appeal to your heart that you have to brace yourself against it to prevent yourself from being persuaded to repent. Do you see how God would gladly persuade you and break your heart in repentance so that He can bring you to where He can reach you with forgiving mercy and where He can come and bless you without resigning His very throne? To deny that you deserve endless punishment is to render your salvation completely impossible. God can never forgive you on this basis because you are trying to be saved based upon justice. You could not make your damnation any more certain if you were to murder every person you meet. You tie up the hands of mercy and will not let mercy pluck you from the jaws of death. It was as if your house were on fire and you would grab your loaded rifle to shoot down everyone who comes with a bucket to help you. You stand your ground amid the raging fire until you sink beneath the flames. Who can help you? Yet that is what the person is doing who is trying to make his family believe universalism. It is as if he would shoot his rifle at the very heart of mercy every time she comes in view. He seems determined to drive off mercy. And for this purpose, he gathers all the weapons of universalism and throws himself into the citadel of this refuge of lies. Oh, what a work of death this is! He seems determined that mercy will not reach him or his family, and mercy cannot come. See how mercy bends from heaven? God smiles in love while mercy weeps in compassion, bends from the very clouds, and holds out the pierced hand of the crucified one. But the universalist says, No. I don't deserve the punishment. Away with the insult of a pardon offered through mere mercy. What can be more fatal, more damning, and more ruinous to the soul? You see very clearly why all people are not saved. It is not because God is not willing to save everyone, but it is because they defeat the efforts God makes to save them.
They pursue every possible hideout and scheme. They resist conviction of guilt, and they resist every call of mercy. What is wrong with these people? What are they doing? Has God come down in His hot wrath and vengeance to cause them to rally to oppose Him with all their might? No, but He has only come in mercy. They are fighting against His mercy, and not just against His righteous retributions of vengeance. If this were His dreadful arm of vengeance, you would quickly bow down or break beneath its blow. But if you would realize it, you would see that God's mercy comes in its soft whispers. It comes to win your heart. And what are you doing? You join yourselves together to resist its calls. You invent a thousand excuses. You run together to talk and you talk away all serious thought. You run to some atheist or universalist to find relief for your uneasy conscience. Oh, sinner, this cannot do you any good. You run away from God. But why? What is the matter? Is God pouring down the floods of His great wrath? No. But mercy has come and would gladly gather you under her outspread wings where storms of wrath can never come. But no, the sinner pleads against it. The sinner criticizes, runs, fights, and resists the angel of mercy and throws down the waters of life from his lips. Sinner, this scene is to end soon. The time is short. God will soon come. Death shakes his dart. That young man is sick. Hear his groans. Are you going to die, my young friend? Are you ready? I don't know. I am in great pain. Oh, how can I live so? How can I die? I can't take care of this now. It is too late, too late. Indeed, young man, you are in weakness now. God's finger has touched you. If I could only tell you some of the deathbed scenes that I have witnessed, if I could make you see them and hear the deep wailings of unutterable agony as the soul quivered and shuddered and desired to shrink away into annihilation from the awful eye and was swept down swiftly to hell. Those are the very people who ran away from mercy. Mercy could not reach them but death can. Death seizes its victim. He drags the frightened, shrieking soul to the gateway of hell. See how that soul cringes and groans? What an unearthly groan! And he is gone. The sentence of execution has gone out, and there is no reprieve. That sinner did not want mercy when he could have had it, and now he cannot have it when he desires it. It is all over now. Dying sinner, you can just as well have mercy today as not have it. All your past sins are no obstacle at all if you only repent and take the offered pardon. Your God offers you life. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, 
Turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Ezekiel 33.11 Why will you reject such offered life? Will you still continue in your ways? Be astonished, O ye heavens. Jeremiah 2.12 Indeed, if there was ever anything that filled the universe with astonishment, it is the sinner's rejection of mercy. Angels were astonished when they saw the Son of God made flesh and when they saw Him nailed to a tree. How much more now to see the guilty sinner doomed to hell yet rejecting offered pardon. They see that sinner putting it off and still delaying and delaying still until the last curtain falls and the great bell tolls the awful ringing of the sinner's eternal death. Where is that sinner? Follow him. Down he goes, weeping and wailing along the sides of the pit. He reaches his own final home. He is in his own place now and forevermore. Mercy followed him to the very edge of the precipice, but could follow no longer. She has done her part. What if a spirit from glory would come and speak to you for five minutes, a relative, maybe your mother? What would she say? What if a spirit from that world of despair would come and speak to you and tell you about the awful realities of that prison house? Would he tell you that the preacher has been telling you lies? Would he tell you not to be frightened by these made-up tales of horror? No, for the half has not been told you, and it can never be. Oh, how he would hold on to you and beg you to help him if he could only flee from the wrath to come. Matthew 3, 7